Welcome to Take the Lead Radio with Dr. Diane Hamilton, where she interviews some of the most successful leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, speakers, and other individuals who will inspire you to take the lead in your career and personal life. And now, here is Dr. Diane Hamilton. Welcome to Take the Lead Radio. This is Dr. Diane Hamilton, and I'm so glad you joined us today because we have Dr. Solan Shira here. Uh, Dr. Shira is the CEO and founder at HC Moneyball. She was formerly in senior level leadership at Arthur Anderson, Ernst & Young, The Hay Group, and Towers Watson. She has done amazing things, and she does a lot with quantifying some of the things that are hard to quantify in the HR setting. So I'm really excited to talk to her today. So stay tuned, and we'll be back right after this. Are you interested in finding out more about how HR professionals or leadership consultants can become certified to give the groundbreaking new Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The certification program will provide the ability to administer the assessment at reduced rates. Participants will learn how to interpret the results of the CCI, as well as how to deliver an innovation plan workshop designed to improve curiosity, engagement, innovation, and productivity. To find out more, go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Dr. Solange Shira, who is the CEO and founder of HC Moneyball, whose primary SaaS product is an analytics platform that instantly transforms human capital data into actionable information. Uh, she's also an associate faculty at Columbia, USC, and NYU. She was the CHRO for three publicly traded organizations and held various senior level positions at Arthur Anderson, Ernst & Young, and the Hay Group, and Towers and & Watson. It's so nice to have you here. It's a pleasure to, to speak with you. And after that introduction, I'm already tired. <laughs> That's quite a, you've had quite a career. I, I, I was looking at this. You've written more than 175 articles for HBR, Forbes, Fast Company. You've been cited in 40 academic works. I mean, you're a busy lady. I try. <laughs> well, I saw that you were on, um, I think speaking for Ira Wolf's program, and he's done a lot of work with curiosity, and that's my focus, of course, is building curiosity in businesses and getting people out of status quo thinking. And uh, so I was really interested in your um, analytics platform and what yeah. you've done, but I kind of want to get a backstory on you for people who aren't um, familiar with you, if I don't know how they could be based on everything you've done, but uh, could you um, give me a little backstory what led to your uh, getting to, into all these incredible jobs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think first you should know is I'm from California. Mm -hmm. I've lived in New York since 1986 with a brief stint in Europe. Um, but I'm a, I am a California girl and you know, that old saying holds true. You can take the girl out of California, but you can't take California out of the girl. Uh -huh. So just, you know, want to give a shout out to my home state. Uh -huh. um, and um, it's interesting that, you know, we intersect uh, in, in a big way in terms of your curiosity code and your work in that area um, because um, my, um, I guess my fundamental come from is around transformation and, and it's getting people to um, think differently, to right. transform the way they, they contextualize not only the things that they're observing, but the way that they process that information. Um, so I'm really delighted to talk to you about some of the, the work that we're doing um, on the analytics side. And hopefully, you know, you'll be able to uh, 
I guess, interpret and, and frame it through your lens in terms of the curiosity index and the work that you're doing there. Um, but how did I get here? Uh, it was a long and winding road. <laughs> Um, for those always, of you yeah. old enough, mm -hmm. for those of you old enough to understand the reference, mm -hmm. um, Beatles. And okay. uh, I did not grow up wanting to be a human resources or a human capital expert. It was the furthest thing from my mind. Um, I uh, am the daughter of a long line of entrepreneurs, uh, so it's sort of uh, baked into my DNA to. Um, I guess, be creative and be innovative and, and be a risk taker. Um, I, um, I guess the other thing that's kind of interesting, or uh, not for me, because it's my life, but for others, <laughs> is that um, I didn't speak English until I was about five or six years old. Huh. I was born in California to first uh, to immigrants. So I'm first generation American. We did not speak English in our home we spoke Spanish. Um, and the first time I had to learn how to speak English was when I went to, um, to uh, first grade. So um, I had a sort of uh, an interesting experience as a first generation immigrant, right? I was mm -hmm. first generation American, but my experience was that of an immigrant because I didn't speak the language in the, of the right. country that I was living in until I went to school. And, um, you know, thanks to a, a loving and dedicated first and second grade teacher, Mrs. Hurtado, uh -huh. uh, she, she taught me how to speak English. And so the interesting thing is, and I didn't realize this until later on in my life, is that I speak English with a Midwest accent. Actually, she was from Maryland. And I, I learned how to speak English from her, so I picked up her accent. Huh. And... Um, didn't, didn't realize that I actually spoke English with a Maryland accent growing <laughs> up in California um, until I was a little older when people kept saying, where are you from? <laughs> it's like, I'm from here. Oh, that's um, funny. And I speak a few foreign languages. Oh. And the other interesting thing is uh, I speak the other languages with a Spanish accent, <laughs> not with an American accent. <laughs> Huh. Well, that, that kind of makes sense, though, if you listen to it around your house, you know, yeah. to, to have that part. But um, can you still you still speak Spanish, though, right? And I do. You know, my mom was first generation Italian and she can't speak any Italian and they only spoke Italian in her house. And I'm thinking, how could you have grown up like that and not speaking <laughs> any? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. She, she says she so doesn't understand I, it, but <laughs> yeah. Um, I recommend Duolingo. I, you know, I do too. I love that. I've been taking it. I love it. that. And, and in fact, um, my Duolingo language is Italian. Oh, really? And, Mine's Spanish. That's funny. And, that's funny. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons my language in Duolingo is Italian is because I lived in Italy. Um, in the, I lived in Italy in, oh, I can't even remember now, 1990, 1991. Wow. Um, so it's, it was a long time ago and um, had a great experience living in Milan in Centro Città. There I get to p practice my Italian there you a little go. bit. That was nice. That um, sounded right. But, but that's like 30 years ago. And so mm -hmm. I decided that it's time that I resurrect that language because that's the one that I use the least. 
Um, so thank you, Duolingo, for getting my Italian back in shape. Um, so anyway, a, a long and winding road. I didn't anticipate, I, I didn't grow up wanting to be a human resources person. I grew up actually wanting to be a business person. Um, I studied international economics at UC Berkeley um, and uh, got my MBA from Cornell in accounting and finance with a minor in taxation. Um, you know, really good qualifications for an HR person. Yeah. Uh, not exactly. <laughs> Overqualified. Um, but, and, uh... um, and actually ended up in HR by accident. Huh. So sometimes the accidents, the, the path, not anticipated is the one that actually leads you to a place that brings you joy and happiness and fulfillment and passion. So, you know, I guess my message is to the younger people that are listening, don't get too caught up in, you know, charting a path for yourself because it's the accidents that actually make life really interesting. Yeah, um, that is so that is really uh, a, a really important point. You know, I took one day Kelly girl job. I remember now they're Kelly in, uh, services. Uh, but I remember yeah. I took a one day position. I almost didn't answer the phone because I didn't want to do it. And it ended up uh, 20 years in that company. <laughs> so you just never know, right? You never know. You never know. Yeah. Um, so my um, my background, my focus in in business and business management and particularly finance and accounting um, really gave me a different lens to look through when I was um, a practicing human resources consultant and then a practicing chief human resources officer. Um, and I think that um, really set me apart from what was traditionally thought of as a human resources practitioner. Um, and um, I think that that really made a difference for me in terms of the impact that I could have, uh, both in consulting to clients and also as a chief human resources officer. And I think it's the theme that we have um, been talking about both inside of the human capital profession and outside of the human capital profession, which is really having human capital be a business partner to the business. And I know that a lot of people are working in this area and are striving or aspiring to be a full business partner. Um, and uh, my observation is that uh, human resources has its own language and its own culture and its own value system. Um, that is sometimes not consistent with the rest of the organization. Um, and not that I want to, you know, denigrate HR at all. I mean, why would I am in that field myself as a professional? Right. Um, but, um, you know, that old expression and, you know, here's a here's a nice tie in when in Rome, do as the Romans. Uh -huh. Right. Um, if you want to be part of the business process in the organization, you have to speak the language of business. And the language of business is a financial language. It's expressed by chief financial officers, by chief executive officers, by chief operating officers, even by chief marketing officers. Even the marketing function has gone financial in terms of the way they measure and the way that they express their impact on the organization. So hmm. um, what we're trying to do at HC Moneyball 
is to help human capital professionals um, really speak a financial language. Um, we help by taking a lot of very rich data that resides in human in the human resources function. I mean, a lot of rich, um, important data that's already being, you know, um, created mm-hmm. or, you know, sort of collected um, and transforming that information into metrics, um, into, um, uh, you know, indicators of human capital performance, both at the program level. So, you know, do we do training and development and how impactful is that training and development on the employees that are participating and on the supervisors that they report to? Um, or how diverse is our employee population? That's really easy. You just count the noses in the organization and, mm-hmm. you know, what race, gender or ethnicity those noses are. Mm-hmm. Um but there's a lot of data in the organization that we can mine to understand how well we're doing against human resources, um, policies, and, and I guess goals. But more importantly, what we're interested in or what I'm interested in is how does that human capital performance impact the organization at the enterprise level, at the financial level, in the aggregate? Right. So. I might be spending a lot of money in my training and development and I might be fulfilling my goals. I might, you know, my goal might be that 75% of all employees receive some level of training every year. That's great. But what's the ROI, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. What is the ROI? Are we really getting value? Is that the right training to give people at the right time at the right level? And, and, and are we pushing the needle? Are we moving the needle in terms of, of organizational performance or enterprise level performance? So we can you know, measure the ROI of our investment in training and development and understanding whether or not our employees are more productive, um, are more um, sticky, are they staying with us longer? Um, are we generating um, more skills, competencies, um, and, um, you know, uh, and, and knowledge in the organization that we can more effectively deploy, um, which basically looks like, are we move, are we promoting from within and then hiring at the lowest levels that we possibly can, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we have lots of ways of measuring that, but we also want to understand whether or not our investment and training and development is actually generating higher levels of profitability for the company. Right. And um, we actually look at two different categories of human capital metrics that come out of human capital analytics. Um, the higher order is what we call uh, macroeconomic indicators of human capital performance. And they're things like HCROI, human capital return on investment, and human capital value add, HCVA, and human economic value add, HEVA, um, and um, HCMV, human capital and market value. I mean, we can actually create, indic- we can establish a market value for our human capital. Wow. Um, wow. And all of those things actually relate back to EBITDA performance, profitability performance. Mm-hmm 
Or if you're a company that's not tracking your financial performance, but maybe you're tracking market share, you can equate that back to a market share indicator. So as long as you can reduce performance to some um, measurable indicator, you can track it over time, correlate it to other financial performance indicators like EBITDA or mm -hmm. maybe return on sales or return on assets or return on equity, or maybe even look at the impact um, that human capital has surprisingly enough on net debt or yeah. on weighted average cost of capital. All of these indicators that the financial people, the CFO and the CEO and investors look at to understand the health of the of the enterprise, the sustainability of the enterprise. Um, and when you think that human capital often is 50% or more of an organization's operating expense, hmm. we gotta look at this. Right. I mean, if you're a chief financial officer, you're looking at every expense category in your organization, and when you come to HR, you go, sunk cost, Right. check the box, sunk mm -hmm. cost, can't do anything about that. Right. And if that's the biggest part of your expense, it's the part that's the most leverageable, which means hmm. that the smallest improvements then your human capital return will generate very big impact on bottom line performance. And, and we're actually seeing a lot of this happen now because about five years ago, um, CFOs were asked to start thinking beyond the numbers, beyond being responsible for accounting and finance, and really taking a stand on improving um, enterprise level efficiencies. How do we make this organization more efficient? Right. And there's human capital is a great place to take a look at that. Um, and, and people don't. Why? Because human beings are messy. They're unpredictable. Um, typically, chief financial officers, chief executive officers, chief operating officers don't understand the language of human capital. They don't understand our language they don't see it as quantifiable a lot of times either um i that's think exactly right you that's know exactly that's right. what i was trying to do with the curiosity information was quantify it because uh, i kept seeing that uh i want i would love to get more data i mean i've had francesca gino on on the show and her um work that she published in hbr about the case for curiosity was great because it's some quantifiable information how could you do what you do uh for looking at the the impact of training like for curiosity and how they're overcoming some of these factors that are holding them back. I, I'm, I'm trying to visualize how you could um, quantify that to see if it's impact on EBITDA or whatever, you know, yeah. measures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, the the alphabet soup that I spouted earlier, HCROI, HCVA, HCVA, H uh, EVA, I think I said that, HCMV. Mm -hmm. um, these are not my constructs. Right. These um, indicators have been distinguished in academic literature and used over the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, and now they're coming into the mainstream, which is really kind of interesting. So what I didn't finish telling you about my background is that I um, got my MBA and then I was out of school for about 20 years. Oh maybe even more. Wow. Yeah. 
and um, about 22 years, actually, um, and then went back to get my PhD. Mm -hmm. And um, I got my PhD from Case Western Reserve University, um, great school, great, great program. Um, and their philosophy is to, so first, to get into the program, you need to have significant number of years of experience in senior management. So they don't want people straight out of school. They want people who have had life and work experience. Right. Um, and their point of view is they their program, their uh, DBA program, is focused on creating scholarly practitioners, bridging the gap between academic research and the practitioner's world. Right. And so um, the lag, uh, the time, the lag time between what we learn in the academic world and how it gets applied to the practitioner's world is too long. By the time it gets adopted by the practitioner's world, we've missed the boat. Mm -hmm. So their focus is to generate these um, you know, great people whose focus is being a practitioner scholar or a scholarly practitioner. Either way, mm -hmm. it's cut to the same place, which is basically having one foot in the academic world and one foot in the practitioner's world. And, right. you know, their graduates um, and the uh, Weatherhead program is, in fact, the oldest doctor of business administration program in the United States. So there are lots of alums out there. So you should be looking for them and hiring them because we're all great. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's to, I know an unabashed uh, uh, for, for, uh, for the Weatherhead uh -huh. School uh -huh. um, is, is to be that bridge, is to marry the rigor of academic research um, to the practical world so that we can move faster in the, in the practical world and really gain competitive advantage. Um, so the research that's done on the financial impact, or here's a good word for you, the materiality of human capital ah. on corporate financial performance has actually been studied for 40 plus years in the, in the academic world. Um, it's what the International Standards Organization in Switzerland uh, based their um, uh, new governance standard, uh, which is the number is 30-414, which is Human Capital Governance Standard. I think that's the formal name of it. Mm -hmm. um, that was um, released in January of 2019. So um, they based their um, their standard, their ISO standard, on what was in the um, in the academic world, and their fundamental foundation for this governance standard for this um, you know this ISO standard is their observation that organizations that are more transparent perform better than organizations that don't disclose don't share don't track don't monitor and don't measure especially in human capital right so um, you know so there's there's something in this concept that the more we measure and, you know, this is an old Michael Porter thing. You can't improve what you can't measure. Um, the more you measure and the more you share that information with both internal and external constituents, um, the better off your organization is going to be. And the better off your organization performs, the more the investor community likes it, right? We mm -hmm. all want to invest our money in, in organizations that are healthy, sustainable, and can support economic value creation. And ISO's um, fundamental 
concept is that starts with measurement and continues with communication and disclosure um, and tracking those measurements over time. And yeah. you had, you know, your, your comment is how do we measure stuff? And I started by saying there's lots of data in the HR function that is system systematically collected, mm -hmm. right? In our right. HRIN systems. Um, and so getting the data is not the problem. Um, getting human resources people to adopt an analytics approach, that's a little bit of a problem. <laughs> and I think that's, uh -huh. that's where you and I, um, you know, we, we overlap, right. which is you need information to make better decisions. Right. And, and you, and you need to find a way of quantifying what's observed in the organization. Well, I, I think a lot of leaders will ask me, you know, what data do you have to support the value of curiosity on, um, you know, en engagement? I mean, we know we're losing 500 billion a year or whatever the data that to Gallup get, has, for example. But to get it to um, compare the, the improving curiosity, improving um, it improves engagement or improving curiosity improves innovation or, you know, those are the studies I'd like to see and they're really n not out there. So do, can, do you do that type of uh, research with your analytics at all? I'm just curious, where do you get that kind of content? So we um, curate in existing org information, mm -hmm. right? We don't ask organizations to actually create any data for us. Okay. Um, we curate data from HRIS systems, mm -hmm. from payroll systems. That, and, and the important piece is we curate financial information from um, mostly the pre-closing trial balance sheets where every expense code is laid out and you know populated in terms of uh, how much money the organization spent um, anything that's coded hr could be contractors could be mm -hmm. gig workers could be training training and development expense could be you know hiring consultants from the outside to consult around hr um, could be you know um, cost of recruitment if you're paying headhunters or if you're right. paying fees, mm -hmm. um, it could be the annual Christmas party that's employee oriented. Right. So anything that you're coding to an HR expense is what we're going to take into the into the platform. Mm -hmm. um, and we also ask organizations to provide information like revenue, like on a monthly basis, mm -hmm. revenue expense total expense um you know we're getting their headcount number we're we're getting that out of our payroll system um we are asking for um certain other financial indicators like your weighted average cost of capital so with like 20 some odd data points i mean this is not a, a heavy lift mm -hmm. and again we're not asking organizations to create information we're just asking organizations to curate information from existing sources. Um, you load that data into the platform and bing, bang, boom, you can automatically understand the relationship between human capital performance and corporate financial performance. So we look at things like, you know, we talked about training and development. Mm -hmm. What are you spending on training and development every month? Mm -hmm. What is your expense there? How many people um, are uh, on average are going or participating in training every month 
And then we can look at the, the cor corollaries to that, which could be in a month or two months, does productivity go up? Does retention go up? Does attrition go down? Um, and we're helping organizations find those relationships, find those, those correlations so that companies can make better decisions about where they're going to invest their limited resources. You and that's- But you can't that's find like, causation, you're finding correlations, right? We're finding the platform will allow you to find correlations. Mm -hmm. and, and if you want to um, do a multivariate you know, analytics project. Mm -hmm. um, we've got um, we've got six or seven uh, people on our staff who are PhDs in in um, technology, and we download your data and we do an analytics um, you know exercise. Right, uh, and we can help you not only understand closer causation, right? Because We'll right. never 100% yeah. know causation. Right. You can't, right? You can't. This, right. That's like impossible. Mm -hmm. But we can get closer to it, and then we can show you statistical significance, and we can show you the beta, the, cor the correlation coefficient, what's strongly correlated to EBITDA or to market share in your human capital um, performance. So, um, you know, the platform gives you an idea, gives you directionality, um, and, you know, you can engage us to actually do a, um, a, a um, more sophisticated analytics exercise, we, you know, predictive analytics. Um, hmm. And the, the good, the interesting thing is organizations that hire data scientists, that's what the data scientists are doing. They're taking their data, they're building, um, you know, uh, predictive analytics models. Um, they're, you know, picking whatever methodology that they're going to use, whether or not it's going to be regression or it's going to be, you know, um, some other approach to, and that's what the data scientists are hired to do, right? right? Figure out how to get data, how to build a model, predictive model, and how to inform decision making. Um, and um, the price of a data analytics scientist a data scientist um and i don't you know di i guess different parts of the country will have different price tags right. but uh, in the northeast you want a good data scientist you're going to spend about three hundred thousand dollars in salary to wow. get a good data scientist to work for you hmm. um these are not cheap people that's why it's the, it's like a what high job did, what, what is there a degree in that i don't even know what degree that would be to be a data scientist yeah you 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 typically need a PhD in in statistics in either or... in statistics, mm -hmm. mathematics, information science. Mm -hmm. So um, you know a PhD will fetch easily three hundred. I mean I know somebody who didn't have a PhD and was offered a job at a major organization. Base salary was between four hundred fifty and five hundred thousand dollars. Wow. So we're talking about a high level of sophistication to help organizations better understand the relationship between human capital and corporate financial performance um, with a price tag that's a fraction of what you would spend to hire a, a data scientist to your organization. So it's sort of like yeah. a shortcut mm -hmm. and it provides a lot of information and the information uses standard algorithms. So there's no black box. 
um, what we're trying to do is create a, a database. So, you know, let's say you're a mid-sized company and you, um, you know, you profile your performance, you do your macroeconomic and your micro program level um, analytics to understand whether or not your programs are efficient and then the impact of human capital on the whole organization. And then you, and that's great, right? You can, you get a lot of insights, but then the question is, how are, how's, how am I doing against everybody else? And the platform allows you to benchmark. So you can actually nice. say, oh, mm -hmm. compared to this set of organizations that I can filter based on size or location or, or performance, I'm doing better than or worse than um, from a financial perspective, you know, all those mm -hmm. financial indicators like ROE, ROS and the like, mm -hmm. um, but also from a human capital perspective. So is my human capital ROI above or below my filtered set of competitors? And that gives you, um, you know, that context for understanding whether or not, you know, you might calculate that your HCROI is 4.8, you know, for mm -hmm. every dollar you invest in human capital, you're getting a $4.80 return on it. Right. And you may be really happy with that until you find out that your <laughs> competitor are getting 10 and $12 return on every dollar that they invest in people. Now, uh -huh. now you're not so happy. Right, right. So it's not just about understanding your performance, it's really contextualizing it to mm -hmm. understand how that is helping you either have a competitive advantage or lose a competitive advantage in the marketplace. Uh, you know, it, I had um, talked to, uh, I'm working with companies like Verizon and Novartis, and I was thinking of a conversation I had with uh, Novartis and the research they'd done for um, looking at engagement of how they compared to the industry average and how increasing curiosity had moved them from, I think, point, you know, three points below the average to two points above. Yeah. You know, and so I like to see data that ties into engagement and innovation and a lot of the things that they're asking me to to talk about what are the top types of um, you know terms like those kind you know engagement and motivation or whatever yeah. what words are they using with you that they want to see do they want to see innovation do they want to see uh, creativity do they want to see you know certain things change are they asking you to look for analytics like that that you haven't looked at um and i love that question and i mm -hmm. wish people were asking <laughs> asking that from us. I'm asking for um, it. Um, and, and you're way ahead of the game. Um, Thank and, you. You know, I, I sort of liken it to you got to learn how to crawl before you can learn how to walk, before uh -huh. you can learn how to run. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, we're trying to um, get people to think differently mm -hmm. um, around the importance of quantifying the human capital experience. And again, at the macroeconomic level and at the micro program level. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what we're promising people is that they don't have to collect or create new information. So everything that they've already got in their system can give them um, a landscape view of how they're performing. Um, and a lot of the things that you're asking for, asking about like innovation and curiosity and engagement um, are, um, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get technical for a second, or okay. variable, right? Mm -hmm. or, right, right, or attributes or indicators, um, where you actually have to collect primary data, you have to go to the employee and say, do you feel 
Right. How are you experiencing this? Right. Um, and for a lot of organizations, that's a deal breaker. They don't want to go to their employees. They don't mm-hmm. want to ask employees whether or not they're engaged. And mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure, you know, I think some of the reason is they don't want to disturb the workflow. Some of the reason is they don't want to know the answer. Right. right? Uh-huh. Like, I don't, I'd rather be an ostrich and uh-huh. not deal with the issue, not know about it, than have to know about it and deal with it. Right. Um, so... Um, we we're, we ask people to actually just give us existing data, which is secondary data. We don't need we don't necessarily need the lived experience of the employee in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and what and so you know we're not creating a burden on the organization. Yeah. We also believe that um, the experience of engagement and the experience of innovation and mm-hmm. the experience of curiosity mm-hmm. um, can oftentimes be expressed through other things. Mm-hmm. So a direct or a latent variable. Okay. Um, if you have engaged employees, you have low levels of attrition. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we have to make some assumptions about the relationship okay. between high levels of engagement and how that manifests in behavior if you've got loyal employees you have long you have long tenure Mm -hmm. if if you have um um, engaged employees you typically have higher levels of productivity right because they're not screwing around at their desk they're actually working um if you have curious employees or innovative employees you typically can see that in terms of product development and commercialization of product Mm -hmm. and sales. So what we try to do is we try to find the proxy for the direct measurement because we don't require that organizations actually get primary data, firsthand data. Mm -hmm. We say we can sort of give you an idea of engagement and innovation Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, maybe even curiosity I, we'd have to think about what the what the result what the measurable resulting mm-hmm. indicator is their manifestation of curiosity is and collect that and then we can you know make I, some assumptions I about. think it's an interesting thing because I, I don't mean to interrupt you but I, there was a um it, I've had this talk with a lot of people like Francesca Gino and different people on the show and I've asked them you know what comes first curiosity or motivation curiosity or creativity curiosity or innovation and any of these things they all say curiosity so it's, it's kind of like I look at it as baking a cake if your end product is cake and you have ingredients like uh, flour, uh, oil, eggs, and things. Yeah. You're mixing it together. You're putting it in a pan. You put it in the oven. You want cake, but nobody turn on the oven so you don't get cake. And right. in the business setting, your, your your cake is productivity, money, you know, and your cake, right? And everybody's mixing together motivation and drive and, and innovation and engagement. But then you look at the spark as curiosity. So it's really hard to look at what to measure. Yeah, and where do you, so I would think, based on your analogy, that the oven, mm-hmm. right? Right. I forgot to turn on the oven. The oven is culture. Well, you know, that's interesting because my next book is on um, perception. And perception I saw as a combination of 
like IQ, EQ, and then CQ for curiosity and CQ for culture. And they all kind yeah. of combine to this perception process uh, yeah. that we go through. So it, it's so hard. It's chicken or the egg sometimes on some of this stuff. Yep. <laughs> you know so, I mean? let me, so let me throw in another ingredient into your cake. Okay. Um, I love which, that. Which is really akin to this concept of perception. Mm -hmm. So one, there's a stream of research around organizational justice. Okay. Um, which I like to teach uh, my students about. Okay. Um, and, and the way that I teach it is um, organizational justice, and I'll tell you what comprises organizational justice. Organizational justice is the context. Companies have to design their themselves in a way so that employees perceive organizational justice okay and the flip side of it so that's the context mm -hmm. and the flip side of it is motivation employees mm. need to be motivated so mm -hmm. you can look at it through our employees motivated right mm -hmm. they can be as motivated as you as you want them to be and if the organization isn't perceived in a way by the employee to treat them fairly the oven doesn't get turned on right right, right? that employees, even though they're highly motivated, if they don't work in, a, in an organization where they perceive that they are being treated fairly, will go someplace else. You know, well, that's, and, that ties in. The four things that I found that inhibit curiosity are fear, assumptions, the voice in your head, basically, uh, technology, and environment. And that you're talking about an environment right there. I'm definitely talking about environment. Mm -hmm. And organizational uh -huh. justice is very studied. It's mm -hmm. been studied for a long time. It continues to be studied. Um, in fact, I have a Google Scholar alert set up for organizational justice. I get a, I get noticed of new uh, articles maybe once a week yeah. in the academic community. Organizational justice is really the, the employees, the worker, and I don't want to say employee because when we say employee, we typically assume that an employee is either a full-time or a part-time W-2 wage earner. And and that's not our world anymore. A right. work, a, an employee um, really should be called a worker. Okay. And a worker is anyone that provides input into the business model from a labor perspective, so from I a nine. work perspective. Right? So it could be your digital workforce. Mm -hmm. It could be your boss. Right? Okay. It could be gig workers, it could be contracted workers, it could be, you know, the outsource, like a PEO organization. But whatever that input is, that labor input is into the business model is what we should be thinking about in terms of the worker. And of course, you know, bots are not going to have perceived organizational justice because they're a bot. But your gig worker will, and you know, your, your seasonal worker will, and what organizational justice is, is really made up of four components. Um, distributive justice, procedural justice, informational justice, and interactional justice. And um, distributive, uh, sorry, procedural justice is the employee answering the question, is the organization set up to treat me fairly? Are the programs and policies designed in a way that I will be treated fairly? Um, and, you know, we see a lot of that now with social justice movement, with L LGBT, 
LBGT. Right, the alphabet. Sorry, I'm stumbling over it. With, you know, the Me Too movement, pay equity. So the employee needs to perceive that the organization is actually designed, set up in a way to treat them fairly. Distributive justice is the employee saying, am I getting treated fairly, personally? So it's not, is it set up to treat me fairly? It's the outcome. Am I being treated fairly? Am I getting paid, you know, fairly compared to other people? Do I have the same opportunities for training, development, mobility, advancement than other people? So is what I'm getting at the end of the day something that I perceive as being fair, right? Right. Are the systems are set up fairly, then are they generating a fair outcome for me? So that's procedural and distributive. The third one is interpersonal uh, justice, which is, do I feel that my boss is treating me fairly? Right, right. And do I have, you know, am I being... That's a huge one if people are leaving bosses and not organizations. That's that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And what the research has found is that interpersonal justice, and I hate to use this word, trumps trumps procedural justice. Mm -hmm. The organization may be set up to treat me fairly, but my boss isn't treating me fairly, so I'm out of here. Right, right. So even if the thing's in place, I'm still not the recipient of being treated fairly. And then the last um, justice, the last component of justice is um, what I think of as an indicator of inclusion, which is, are my peers treating me fairly? You know, can Mm -hmm. I bring my true and authentic self to the workplace and not feel that I'm being judged or marginalized? Hmm. And you get that experience from your peers, from the the people that you work with. Um, And when you score on all four uh, aspects of justice, when the organization is truly, um, you know, living organizational justice, you find that organizations, enterprises um, are high performing. They outperform their competitors. I mean, this is 40 some odd years, maybe even more in this space of, of research that there is a um, unquestionable link between the way the employee perceives their work environment, um, their relationships, the organization itself, um, and what they get out of working there. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, uh, cash-based, mm-hmm. doesn't need to be extrinsic-based rewards. It could be intrinsic rewards. Do I feel like my job has purpose? Do I feel like I'm part of something bigger, that my work has meaning, right? That that also is a level of reward that we can give to employees. Yeah. And when- Well, I'm, when I'm organizations- just curious though, uh, when you're talking about how they perceive it, can we work on their perception? Maybe it's something, the same, position two people have completely different perceptions of getting the same uh stimulus and same you know situation yeah and that's the that's the responsibility of the organization Mm -hmm. you know and i can tie this right back to the iso saying that when organizations are transparent they perform better so organizations need to understand if there are misperceptions of their policies, programs, and how rewards are being 
I say rewards in the broadest sense, right? Mm-hmm. Not just cash pop. I'm talking about opportunity, training and development, intrinsic rewards. Um, it's and come, I mean, when I was a CHRO, I made it my business to understand how people felt about the organization. I wasn't going to hide behind my, you know, the the door of my office and say, I'm here to do a, an administrative job and, you know, the hell with everybody else. <laughs> made it my business to understand yeah. how people felt about the organization. Because, yeah. and I used to tell my boss, who's a brilliant guy, um, you know, we at one point, so I followed him from one company to another. And in the second company, we were in Times Square on the 47th floor of a high rise building. And I used to say to him, our assets ride down this elevator every night. And I, every night I go home and I pray that they'll all come back in the morning. And my job is to make sure that they all come back in the morning and they focus on their jobs and they're happy and productive. And, you know, we are human resources. We, we set the standard for customer service. We were an insurance company. So, mm-hmm. you know, we we're all, all you know, market facing, almost every job is market facing. Mm-hmm. And I used to tell my staff, we set the standard for customer service. If we treat our, our employees well, then they know what it feels like and they will turn around and deliver the same high quality customer service to their clients. So it starts at home. We are the core of high customer service, high touch customer service. Well, and I think that's really important. You know, as as you say this, um, I've just had so many people on the show talking about board of directors and who's represented to, you know, to fix certain things and to you know give advice on certain things. And since you have such a diverse background and such a strong HR background, but are also you know you right now are uh, a CEO, do you think we should be putting, especially you know, trying to get more women on boards? Should we get HR professionals on board of directors, or do you oh, think? Yeah. And when, oh, why yeah. don't they do that? Because I've had so many people tell me that they think, no, that's the consulting angle. They could hire consulting consultants for that, but that shouldn't be part of the board. Wow. But I'd like to hear your position. Um, yeah, well, you know, no surprise what my position is going to be. <laughs> and I, I know we, we just had a couple more minutes uh, for the show, but I just wanted to see what what do you think we can do to change that? Yeah, um, and I, it's a great, great question. Um, and, um, and I, I, and I'm sure it's not an accident that you asked me that because my PhD (laughs) research focused on board directors, Uh um, and, um, I'm part of the conference board. Uh, I'm a distinguished principal research fellow for the conference board, and we just finished a year and a half research project on human capital management as a governance issue, as an ESG issue. And, um, and some, and it's coming out in Jan and I think either December or January. So I'll, I'll let you know when it comes out. Um, but we are, one of our big recommendations is for board directors, you either need to train your board directors on human capital matters, mm-hmm. right? On, on, on the deep technical issues related to the human capital function, or you need to recruit a board member who has deep experience in this area. Um, or you need to hire a consultant to consult to the board. But we really feel that it should be, um, you know, an indigenous um, set of experiences Mm -hmm. and competencies um, because the world is changing too. And the world is changing because we've gone from a 
technology centric, sorry, from a, pro a product or production centric business model to technology centric business model to customer centric business model. And what we're facing now in the future is an employee centric business model. And when that business model is focused on the employee and what the employee can do, you need to have board governance that is focused specifically on human capital and human capital performance. And the best way to do that is to recruit women, sorry, not necessarily women, yeah, but um, human capital expertise onto the board. But they'll so say, who do you get rid of if to add that? Or do you just add another you, position? You don't need to get rid of anybody. Uh -huh. you, can, you can certainly add. Um, and so here's the, the scary part and also the opportunity part. Um, uh, board directors, average age at this point in time, I know it's coming down because over the last 10 years, we've added younger and younger board directors. But the average age of, you know, corporate America boards is some someplace in the mid 70s. Wow. So if people are retired, if that's the average age, it ranges, right? So right. You've got yeah. board members that are in their 80s <laughs> or more. Uh -huh. Those those, and I'm going to say men, because they're primarily men, right. um, are going to cycle off of your board. So use that as an opportunity to replace that retiring board member with a new set of skill sets that's really critical to your company's um, operating efficiencies. I think right? and that's so important. That's really and important. Here's the big headline. The SEC is now going to require that um, companies, filers, um, disclose anything that is material of a human capital nature. Mm -hmm. So you need that expertise at the board level because the boards are the responsibles for um, disclosures, right? Right. right. Um, so it's all, you know, it's like this perfect storm. Everything is happening all at once. And yay, I made a couple of funky little turns someplace early in my career. And here I am <laughs> right in the middle of this, um, you know, combining my governance PhD with my human capital, um, you know, practical experience with my, my analytics background. So, um, you know, it's the, my three passion areas are now converging. Um, like a Venn diagram, I'm right back in the middle. And, and, and you can only imagine how excited I am to wake up every morning to this new world. Uh, well, I, I think everything you're working on is so inspiring. And I was so excited to have you on the show. This has been so great. I think a lot of people are want to know how they could follow you or find your work or just, you know, I don't know if you're on the social media, if you do any of that, but uh, just wanted to see if you wanted to share any kind of website or just your school yes, site. Yes, please. Yes, please. So, okay. um, First thing you should do is follow HC Moneyball, H-C Moneyball, M-O-N-E-Y-B-A-L-L, -L, all one word. Um, follow the HC Moneyball uh, LinkedIn page. That's the company page. Okay. Um, and, you know, we post a lot of content there that's relevant, that's the intersection between governance, human capital analytics, and big data. So that's where you're going to find, you know, new things that are coming out or thought leadership about that. Um, and if you want to learn more about the company, you can go to www.hcmoneyball.com well, and you can learn. We've got a magnificent board of advisors, magnificent. I mean, it'll knock your socks off who's interested in this topic. My management team is unbelievable. Also, knock your socks off. We're doing some amazing things right now. Um, we're actually looking right now at issues around diversity and equity. 
Hmm. Um, and as a driver of, of uh, corporate financial performance, the platform will actually let you instantly understand, you know, equity performance around diversity, around pay, around training and development, mobility, advancement, attrition, and velocity. Are you moving um, all people and all uh, ethnic, gender, and race categories um, through the organization at the same rate, which is really, really oh, important. That's interesting. Well, this has been so fascinating. I really enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you so much uh, for everything. This was really fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. And we will be back right after this message. Do you know someone who might benefit from taking the Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The CCI is the first and only assessment that determines the factors that inhibit curiosity. It's simple. If you recommend the assessment to someone else, you can receive 20% of the purchase price that they pay when they take the CCI through the link provided by you. To obtain the link and become an affiliate, please go to drdianehamilton.com forward slash affiliate. Well, I'd really like to thank Solange for being my guest today. What a great show. I learned so much. She is really uh, fascinating to me, and I love all the stuff she's working on. We get so many great people on this show. If you've missed any past episodes, you can go to drdianehamilton.com to catch them. Uh, in addition to wherever podcasts air and our AMFM shows, we transcribe the shows, so anything we talk about is linked to, and that's really nice. So go ahead and check out the site. I know we've interviewed more than a thousand people there, so that should keep you busy for a while. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you join us for the next episode of Take the Lead Radio. You've been listening to Take the Lead with Dr. Diane Hamilton on C-Suite Radio.